Hi, and welcome to All Things Cozy with Matt and Jillian. We are a bi-weekly podcast about everything that is warm, soft, and comforting. This week, we're joined by Vivian Chen, author of the Noodle Shop mystery series, the newest of which, Murder Low Maine, is in bookstores now. Welcome to the podcast, Vivian. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I loved your book. <laughs> I'm so excited to read more. Oh, thank you. I started with Murder Lomain, but I love this world and the characters, and I can't wait to dive in. And we had a lot of listeners actually recommend you uh, to us, so the people have been calling for it. Oh, that's so great to hear. They're clamoring for you, Vivian. <laughs> so before we start asking you questions, we're going to just check in with what's making us feel cozy this week. What's making me feel cozy is what I did Friday, <laughs> which was attend an unauthorized musical, hmm. which if you live in Los Angeles and I suspect New York and maybe other places, you might see these pop up a lot. It's basically a group of actors or directors and musicians take a popular movie like Clueless or 10 Things I Hate About You. And in this case, I know what you did last summer and they set it to pop songs oh. and, they, and they make it a musical. And so this was I Know What You Did Last Summer, the unauthorized musical, and it was a lot of fun. What songs did they use? They did Cruel Summer, for sure. It was all a blur. I can't remember titles, but it was like all of your nostalgic late 90s hits. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> that does sound it fun. It was a lot of fun. The only thing that was kind of a drag was that it was at a bar with a two-drink minimum. Well. And so, I mean, <laughs> sounds not, that I'm, not that I'm complaining about drinks. I'm, that's, I would never do that. It gets pricey. It gets pricey, but it was worth it. And I think the funniest thing for me, though, was... First of all, just singing songs while a guy in a slicker and a, a fish hook walks around and he's also singing was so bizarre. I have photos. I'll share them with everybody on the Instagram. But my absolute favorite thing about the show was because there were waiters coming in and out of the room while they were performing, it created this really strange atmosphere where they're singing and then a waiter is like ducking between them <laughs> to get a drink to somebody because it's all it's not like there's no stage. You're all on the same floor together. There'd be these big reveals where the killer would come out of the curtains and then a, a waitress would come out behind him. They'd be in the spotlight and people going to the bathroom would come out into pivotal scenes and they just like walk into somebody singing. That'd be my worst nightmare. I could never, I could never <laughs> do that job. I hate being in the spotlight. So, <laughs> But it was super cute, very well done and an enjoyable time and just kind of a bizarre, delightful atmosphere. I need to see that because I'm like personally victimized that slicker and that um <laughs> that hook that terrifies you for some reason that little outfit is so frightening i don't know why but the i know you did last summer murder outfit makes me laugh because he looks like some sort of goth paddington to me oh I my can't god take him seriously. Never thought of that. also that other um there's this other uh, character villain who wears um a parka I, I forgot what movie it is i can't think of that it's like, i don't know it's like a snow coat you never see his face is this like South Park, like Kenny? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> I'll look it up later, but that's my second most terrifying uh, killer outfit. Kenny from South Park. Got it. <laughs> Julian, what's making you feel cozy? Last night, I was actually at a, a, a drag show, and the, they had it's a part restaurant. And so they had a lot of, um, you know, appetizers, a big menu. It was more like a diner atmosphere. So someone at my table got mozzarella sticks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it brought me back home. I haven't, I haven't had a mozzarella stick in the longest time, but it reminded me of being a kid because I would always get mozzarella sticks, kind of like my chicken fingers. So my what's making me feel cozy this week is basic appetizers. And my basic appetizers, I mean nachos, those little hot dogs. Um, what's it called? Those little baby hot dogs rolled up in a croissant. <laughs> oh, pigs in a blanket. Yeah, pigs in a blanket. 
Yeah, chicken fingers, the whole nine yards. I, I know chicken fingers are your jam. That's your favorite. <laughs> so just in that, those like little finger foods make you feel really cozy. They don't have them as much as often, especially in LA. There's no, there's not many people who have mozzarella sticks and chicken fingers, but something about it brings me back to my childhood. And I just want a mozzarella stick. <laughs> who doesn't? There's it's comfort food. I guess yeah. that's that's what it is. So to sum it up. You're not going to the right places in LA. There are plenty of places that sell mozzarella okay, sticks. Apparently, wherever I go, I'm not going to the right places. It's you have like, to stop going to their organic health food shops. I, th- I think that's my problem. I think, yeah, I went to um, this restaurant on Friday and I had poached egg avocado corn fritters. That does sound delicious. And it sounds own, good. Oh, right. But, you know, it's always really like a mozzarella stick. <laughs> <laughs> All right, enough of the mozzarella sticks. <laughs> My ode to mozzarella. <laughs> mozzarella stick, the unauthorized musical. That would be great. I would totally go to that. Vivian, what's making you feel cozy? So this week, well, I just finished um, book five on Sunday. Oh, congratulations. congratulations. Thank you. So this week I've got to go back to a little tradition I like to do when I get home from work, which is make a cup of coffee, just sit on the couch and veg out with my dog. No electronic, mm. no anything. Just sitting and drinking coffee. I love an evening coffee. Oh, yes, me too. It kind of works similar to alcohol in terms of erasing all of the awful stuff that happened that day. (laughs) Yes, I agree. It's a restart. I just like sipping stuff. I just, (laughs) I hate sitting, you know, without a cup of something, water, wine. I just... Mozzarella sticks. Yeah, I don't know. It's the the repetition. It's soothing, having something in your hand. Um, It's a mindless action. That sounds very cozy. What kind of dog do you have? I have a toy fox terrier. Very cute. cute. Jillian has two cats. Yes, but I grew up with dogs, so dog lover at heart. But now I have two cats, Snickers and Reese's. And now officially a cat lady. (laughs) I I really feel like my whole life is, I mean, covered in cat hair all the time. I've really, my life's fallen apart. (laughs) (laughs) It just means you have furry friends. It's a a good sign. Yeah, I'm starting to become a furry friend at this rate. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Vivian. So we'd like to start off with, just a quick description of your noodle shop mysteries. Can you describe your noodle shop mysteries for our listeners? Sure. Uh, this is always the least favorite part of mine, which is funny because you write the book, so you feel you should be able to talk about what it is. And a lot of people, when they you know catch me and say, oh, what do you write about? Uh, murder and noodles? I don't know. <laughs> um, but really what the story is, is about a girl who is in her late 20s, And she goes through a rough patch in her life. And she ends up having to work in her parents' uh, noodle shop. And, of course, murder then ensues. And she's got to figure it out, along with trying to work her life back on the upscale. So a lot of it's just following her journey and then messing with her along the way. You know, how many problems can I give her in her own life while she's also trying to solve a murder? It's a good description. Very succinct. I know yeah. it's it's always, I mean, we have to do this a lot when we talk about any sort of media on the show and somehow summing up any property is like extremely difficult. We're <laughs> just talking awful. about our, our podcast in general and they say, oh, what's your podcast about? It's like cozy stuff. <laughs> I immediately feel ashamed when I'm asked to describe my own podcast. It's like, I have a podcast and I get, my, I get red in the face. Well, there's only so, so many synonyms for cozy, you know, yeah. so that makes yeah. it difficult. Yeah. We've, we've long since given up on that. We just say cozy 10 million times per episode now. <laughs> now that we have an idea of what the, the books are about, we're curious what inspired your series. How did the series come about? 
Well, it's kind of an interesting situation because it, it wasn't the standard beginning. So I um, belong to Sisters in Crime, and my local chapter, um, I was involved, well, I still am involved with our newsletter. And so, I, you know, I would write something every month, and I started to get to know the people in the group. And one of the women in my group had been having conversation with her agent, and she said, do you happen to know any Asian mystery writers? Because we're looking for someone to write a series. And my friend happened to say, why, yes, I do. So she contacted me and asked me, you know, there is a series that somebody is looking for. I don't know any details, but would you be interested in doing it? And I thought, well, yeah, of course, you know, sign me up. So um, she connected me with her agent and me, and, uh, who is now my agent, um, we started talking about what I wanted to do with my writing career. And originally, and I, and I still do want to write PI novels, but she said, do you think you could write a coast? And I said, well, I'd certainly like to try. So she said, okay, let's um, get familiar with each other. She had me submit um, some things that I had already written. And she reviewed it and said, you have a great voice. I want to do this with you. I can't really tell you a lot right now. Um, but it's an Asian mystery series. Would you be interested? And I said, sure. So she said, all right, now I can tell you a little bit. So I, I got to learn piece by piece. I didn't know that it was going to be for St. Martin's Press right off the get-go. You know, I just knew top five publishers. So immediately I went online and searched who are the top five publishers. I'm like, okay, it's one of these guys. So it was a really exciting experience, though. Um, I didn't know what it was going to be. But I knew with it being an Asian mystery series, there was going to be two things. It was either going to be some type of gift shop or something to do with food. And since cozies do have, you know, everything is food. Uh, how many, yeah. you know, how many cozies, it, it's the cozy aspect is food. So I said, it's probably going to be an Asian restaurant. And sure enough, it was. Mm -hmm. And so I put together a synopsis for the books and I just kind of took what I knew. I can't, I can't cook Chinese food. So everyone should know that right off the bat. <laughs> so I took what I knew from the service industry because I have worked in Chinese restaurants before. So I kind of took it from that angle and made Lana a server instead of the cook. And I kind of built this town around her in an Asian shopping mall to give me the opportunity to use different characters and different parts of the industry that I do know. So that's how yes. that happened. That's really interesting. Um, and speaking of taking what you, your personal experience and what you know, um, I noticed that the protagonist of Wana shares so many personal similarities with you from the love of donuts to owning a dog to personal background. Um, why did you decide to model Lana closely after yourself? And what are some challenges of writing a character who hits close to home? Because I know sometimes when you're too close to something, it could be hard to write about, but you do it really well. So can you speak a little bit to that? I like to think of Lana as an alternate life. Um, mm -hmm. Lana is a much um, kinder and cozier person than I am in real life. <laughs> um, she's more G-rated. I think that I decided to do it because when I started the series, I thought, what can I really contribute to this genre? What can I contribute with these books? And one of the things that I've felt is lacking is the voice of a mixed race character. Uh, what that person goes through, how, you know, how it can affect their life, how it doesn't affect their life at all. And so I kind of pulled from that. I wanted Lana to have a white dad. 
like I do. I wanted uh, her to have an Asian mom um, to kind of show how that dynamic works. I added the donuts in just because I love donuts so much. I feel like (laughs) in the book. Um, But I kind of gave her these similarities because I can actually speak to them. But, you know, everyone's always talking about write what you know. Well, you know, I know this. So I thought, why don't I kind of add myself into the character and kind of see what happens? But ultimately, me and Lana are are completely different, even though we share these outer similarities. So it sounds like a nice balance um, for the maybe the factual side of it, like the like you mentioned the donuts and the, the similar parents. But at the same time, you have that that fiction, that distance from it. And um, her personality does differ from you. So it sounds like you really struck a great balance there. Well, thank you. I'm trying. Sometimes it's hard. I have to, you know, I'll write something out and it'll sound too harsh for something for Lana to say. Um, So I kind of try to balance the characters. I feel like I put a little bit of myself into everybody. So there's Mm -hmm. a little bit of me and Lana and there's also a little bit of me and Kimmy Tran. Um, there's a little bit of me in Lana's best friend, Megan. So I kind of try and put different aspects of my personality into each character. It's really cool. Yeah. And I think it helps to empathize with each of those characters too. And you can kind of put a little bit of yourself in them or kind of find an aspect of yourself that speaks to those different characters. So they become more real and multidimensional. Yeah, I agree with that. Another thing that we were interested in was Cleveland as the book's primary setting. And I particularly love that as a Midwesterner myself. I'm from the Chicagoland area. Mm. What do you think makes the Midwest cozy? I think probably what it does for me is that it's big and small at the same time. I think that, you know, Cleveland gets a lot of negative viewing from other places. Um, We used to be big and now we're small. But I think that it's a nice balance in the city. It is kind of small. You know, Uh, I feel everyone runs in the same circles. But yet it's such a big city and there's all this little uh, branch offs going on within it. So you still have that big city feel, but there's still something about, you know, the familiarity of, well, this group and this group. You know what I'm trying to say? It's just you have these little niches inside. And I think that that's what helps makes it cozy. You don't necessarily feel lost. Like when you go to another, you know, bigger city, you have, you know, and I, I kind of felt that a little bit um, when I went to Chicago a couple years back, it had that same feel. It's like there's all these little places within this huge city. So maybe you get a little bit lost on the outer skirts of it. But when you live there and experience it, you can find those little niches. Yeah, exactly. And I think what's lovely about the Midwest and I, just, I think you captured it beautifully is like there are a lot of people there. There's a lot going on. But once you're in a certain community in a Midwestern city, you just start to know everybody. Yeah. And that becomes perfect, actually, for a mystery book where you can have all these intricate connections that you can build between people. And it, and for a cozy in particular, it creates that small community feel without having to cab it, COVID up and kill a bunch of people in a <laughs> small town. It's more realistic to have the, a high death rate. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. And it's also just refreshing because yeah. like we've talked about before on our podcast, you know, Bob Cozy Mystery Settings are in New England, which is great. We love New England here, but it's nice to have a little breath of fresh uh, with Cleveland. So I, that's something that I personally appreciate it. And not being from the Midwest, I like to hear about um, other cities that I'm not too familiar with. So that was nice. And um, going off that, another setting 
is the shopping plaza where Lana works and all of the other characters have businesses, which got me really hungry with all their different uh, the food shops and also the bookstore that she goes into. You mentioned that you created this uh, shopping center. So you sort of answered my question in a sense, because I was wondering if it's actually inspired by a location that you know in Cleveland. Well, it, it actually is. Hmm. When, I, well, when I first started the book and I asked you know, one of my writer friends, you know, how am I going to make Cleveland cozy? And she said, you have to think smaller. You have to think, you know, some type of organization or something because you can have a cozy in a big city. You just have to narrow it down a little bit. So I thought, okay, well, what can I do? So we have on the east side of Cleveland, Asia Plaza, and it's a, it's a small shopping center. It has a restaurant in it. I actually um, talk about it in the book. Lee Wah's restaurant is there and that's a real place. Um, cool. So what I wanted to do though, was not put it in an actual establishment for several reasons, but mostly because, you know, I wanted to have something where people weren't going to these places and dying in these real restaurants. I wanted to have, you know, fictional places, but I also wanted to showcase Cleveland a little bit. So I decided, you know, we have jokes out here about East and West side Cleveland. Um, people are are very passionate on their feelings on, I'm an East Sider, I'm a West Sider. So I thought, okay, I'm going to play on that, and I'm going to create a duplicate plaza on the West Side of Cleveland, which actually doesn't exist. So I named it Asia Village, and um, I made it a little bit more grand because I have, you know, zero budget in building. So I can make this place have pagodas, and I can have it, you know, um, with koi ponds and skylights and all these great things. Um, that, you know, would cost a lot of money in real life and put all of my characters there and kind of play on, you know, Lana will go to the east side and she'll she'll go to Asia Plaza, but she works in Asia Village and, you know, mm. keep that separation. So that's kind of how I built that. And I thought it would give me an opportunity as well to have this community of of shop owners, you know, and all different personalities trying to work together, you know, this mini community within another community. Yeah, and that's I, I think is my favorite part of the book. Also, from a technical perspective, because um, you don't have to have Lana hopping in the car all the time, or you know, I, I've heard writers before say sometimes the most difficult thing about writing is having your character get from A to B. Yeah. But with Lana, you can just pop out of the store and she runs into a fellow shop owner, and then that problem solved. So I think it's a very smart decision on your part. Yeah, it keeps everyone together. Yeah, for sure. And it's all these really cozy places that you want to spend time in as a reader, especially Modern Scroll, the bookshop, sounded super cozy. Oh, I love, I love it. that. Just like you said, that rivalry between sides of the city, I think that's like in every city. Yeah. And it was nice to capture that sort of dynamic, which I have actually, have, I don't think I've seen before in a cozy. And it's so funny because it's only, probably it takes 20 minutes to get from one side to the other, but it's, I mean, people mm-hmm. won't go there. Oh, that's on the east side. Forget it. I'm not going. Or, oh, that's on the mm-hmm. west side. And. I mean, it's really, it's just, it's humorous. I like to kind of poke fun at that. Yeah, Chicagoans are notoriously like that too. (laughs) So I want to talk a little bit about character. So your protagonist, Lana, is dating a police officer. She's dating Detective Adam Trudeau. Mm -hmm. And I really loved how in Murder, Low, Maine, their relationship evolves from, you know, that kind of classic dynamic of the real police officer telling telling the amateur sleuth to stop it. (laughs) Stop stop snooping around, leave, leave it alone. You're messing in dangerous territory. And it evolved from that into them actually collaborating a little bit and sharing notes. 
And he even compliments her at the end. I was expecting a little bit of like, a lot of times you see them scolding. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. The, the boyfriend will scold and say like, oh, I can't believe you did that. I'm mad at you, even though you solved everything for us. Um, and he, he complimented her, which I really loved. As a reader, I found that really refreshing. And I'm curious to hear, this is kind of two, two parts of this question. Okay. And the first is, what is your approach to writing Adam and Lana's relationship? And the second part of that question is, are there aspects of dating relationships that you think are particularly important or interesting to capture? I think what I wanted to do is I wanted to build their relationship very slowly and, and kind of see them grow as people. But I also didn't want to be annoyed with what ended up happening. A lot of times when I'm, I'm writing their relationship, I try to think of what my ideal conversations would be in a relationship. How would I want somebody to respond you know, to what I'm saying, would I want them to be supportive of me or would I want them, you know, give me crap about something? So, you know, I kind of go back and forth and say, okay, well, how do I actually want this to develop? Because, you know, I mean, when you're a writer, you're playing God and, you know, you can just make anything happen. But the interesting thing that I found when I write Adam and Lana is that they kind of take over the page. Um, when I was writing the uh, first book, Death by Dumpling, there's a scene in the beginning where Adam is interrogating Lana and all of a sudden they start arguing. Like I'm just typing away and all of a sudden they just start arguing like hardcore. And I stopped and I was like, Whoa, what the heck is going on right here? (laughs) So they kind of just, you know, they took over and I I went back and I was like, wait, no, I don't like this. He's kind of being a jerk. So, you know, I, I kind of dimmed it down a little bit, but I kept most of, of what was there. So a lot of it just kind of comes naturally I really enjoy writing their relationship, but uh, part of it is just I let it flow. And I I think that that, it ends up coming out more natural that way. Um, There have been a couple times where I've written a scene between the two of them where my editor is like, you got to take that out because Adam looks like a total jerk and no one's going to like him. I'm like, okay, I think it's funny, but they don't. So I'll have to change some things in that sense. After I wrote the first book, I, I already had how I wanted their relationship to kind of flow right from the beginning. But after I wrote the first book and I did what every writer tells you not to do, which is to read your you know comments and reviews on Amazon, I went oh, and read all of them on Amazon. Oh, no. And how do you avoid that, though? I mean, honestly, it's so, I think anyone who says they don't, they're probably lying. It's so <laughs> hard. And I think it well, it's become easier you know, now that I'm further along, because you really just don't end up having enough time. So, you know, I imagine the big guys, you know, like David Baldacci and and all them, they probably really just don't have time to read their reviews because they're always the Mm -hmm. ones that are saying, don't read your review. Yeah. You know, but, you know, it, it becomes true because there's so many. So now it's, you know, I try to focus a lot of my time on um, reading reviews, you know, by bloggers and everything that have them on their sites, but it's hard to go onto Amazon and Goodreads and iBooks and all of that. And, you know, look at everything. But one of the comments that stuck out to me was that somebody had said, Oh, here we go. Another relationship between a detective and an amateur sleuth. It's going to go the same exact way. This has already been done a million times. And I thought to myself, no, I don't want it to go that way. And it doesn't have to, you know, and it wasn't really my original plan to make it like every other relationship out there. But I took that into consideration and I thought, okay, how can I make this different? So I thought, okay, what if they came to an understanding? 
And they, you know, he understood she has such a passion for this and these people matter to her. If I want her to be in my life, I have to support her. And she kind of had to look at it as, okay, this is his job as a professional. Of course, he's going to be worried about me. So I kind of try to take mm-hmm. it from that angle. I think what's really funny, too, about her comfort and their relationship with police is the when she has her trailed um, by the other police officer in plain clothes mm-hmm. just to kind of keep an eye on her when there really is a death threat happening that she waves at him in the car, mm-hmm. completely oh destroying. I loved it. <laughs> I thought it was so funny. That is what I would do. I, I feel the same way. It seems rude not to acknowledge them. And that he, she yeah. would know him in a friendly context. So it's like, why not wave at my friend? I can see him in the car over there. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was great. And speaking of characters, I feel like uh, food is a, one of the central characters in your books. There's so much emphasis on that, um, from the different vendors to the noodle house. And you mentioned that um, you're not a chef yourself, not your strong suit, but are there other chefs in your family? So basically everyone can cook but me, but <laughs> in a different way. So if you need me to make you like a lasagna or a turkey or pot roast, I'm in. I can do all That's of you. that. But I can't make Chinese food save my life unless it's a rice cooker. That I got down pat. <laughs> so my mother is a really great cook. My sister is a really great cook, but they didn't really teach me what to do. And a lot of times my mom was shooing me out of the kitchen. Yeah. So uh, a couple years ago, well, now it, I, sometimes I just forget how many years it's been. It's already been maybe like 15 years ago. I had just started, you know, trying to cook on my own. I had moved out and I found a recipe for something that involved um, Shanghai noodles. And I thought, I don't know what the heck that is. And I was too lazy to go, you know, to Chinatown. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to see. They have an ethnic aisle in Giant Eagle, which is our our local grocery store. I said, I'm going to go and see. Maybe they have it. So I get to the ethnic aisle, which is literally, it's a sad state of affairs. It's so small. But I, (laughs) I got there and I couldn't find anything. So I called my mom and I said, what are Shanghai noodles? And her response was, why do you need to know that? (laughs) And I said, well, I'm trying, you know, I'm at the grocery store and I want to make some um, noodles for this recipe and I need Shanghai noodles. And she was like, why do you have to do that? You're only one person. Just go to the mall and get takeout. So that was always her answer. And, you know, I mean, now, of course, I know what Shanghai noodles are, but at that time I did not. And so I said, well, okay, just tell me what they are. So she said, they're not going to have them at Giant Eagle. You're going to have to go downtown. She said, just buy spaghetti noodles. It's the same thing, which it's not. Oh. But yeah. <laughs> I was trying to wrap that around my head around that. I was like, hmm. You know, but, my, you know, my mom is one thing that I will say, you know, she can improvise on, on cooking so well. So I just, I took her advice. I bought the spaghetti noodles. I made it. It was edible. Would I serve it to anybody else? No. But, <laughs> So that was always kind of her outlook um, was, you know, that was something for her to do. She was the cook in the house. She did that. Get out of the kitchen. Get out of my way. Don't burn stuff. She taught me how to make rice. And that was where Mm -hmm. the lesson stopped. So that's what ended up happening. And I've I've experimented with uh, Asian cooking in recent years. But probably the part I find the most difficult is the sauce. 
Um, Mm -hmm. a lot of the ingredients I don't have readily available. So I have to, you know, purposely set out to get them and I forget. So it just ends up a big mess. So I leave a lot of that to the the professionals. (laughs) Yeah. And I guess I, now looking back on, uh, the book, it's more of Juana talking about the taste of the food rather than how it's prepped. So that makes a lot of sense. (laughs) And that's a, it's a good way to go around it. If you don't have that much knowledge about cooking and just to talk about how great the food is. Yes. And you know, and that I feel is my strong suit is I'm really Mm -hmm. good at describing the food and making people very hungry. I have so many people email me and say, after I read the book, I just go get Chinese food all the time. So I I kind of play on that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I was hungry the whole time, so I can second that. When you're writing these books, do you find yourself also like going out to eat a lot just to try new dishes to put into the series? Oh my God, all the time. Mm-hmm. I'm constantly getting Chinese food now. It's horrible. I just, <laughs> all the time I'm like, well, you know, and it's for research, I say. That's a good excuse. Just send all of the receipts to St. Martin's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, for, it's for work, so. Yeah. In a recent interview, you, you described working full-time in addition to writing your mystery series. A lot of our listeners are also writing kind of in the margins. They have jobs, but they're writing their novels. And how do you balance writing and having a day job? Well, I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, (laughs) It it is definitely a challenge. Um, A lot of times, you know, after a day of work, I really don't want to come home and write it because I sit at a computer all day. So I come home and then I look at my laptop and I'm like, ugh, not you again. But, you know, it's there. It, it's just a matter of getting me in the chair. So, you know, once I get home, I give myself, you know, a couple minutes, I walk the dog and then I'm like, okay, it's time to get to work. So I'll try and write an average about 2,000 words on a weeknight. And then on the weekends, I'll spend a considerable, you know, amount of time writing. Um, sometimes I'll sit eight, nine hours on a Saturday and just try and knock out as oh, wow. much as I can. But it uh, it can be very challenging. Do you prefer to write in the morning or the evening? I actually prefer in the morning now, which is weird because I'm, I'm a night person. I'm 100% night mm-hmm. owl, but I found that I don't function as well at night anymore. So I, I prefer to do, you know, things earlier in the day. And then I kind of wind down towards the end. And I can still get writing done at night. It's just not as fast. Yeah, well, it's so hard to reset after a day of work and all the, all that baggage uh, <laughs> yeah. comes with you. Maybe if you had like a difficult day, you're like thinking about whatever just happened there and it's hard to like reset. Do you have any rituals for creating a division between, okay, work brain is over, now I'm in writing mode? It's the coffee. <laughs> you know, it, it's usually the coffee. A lot of times, like this past week, it's been nice when I come home, you know, I can sit with my coffee and not do anything. But when I'm, you know, writing and especially on deadline, that coffee is with me at the computer and it's just, you know, you have to tune into the book. A lot of times I'll just, um, to kind of get myself in the flow of things, I'll reread what I wrote the previous day and kind of look and see like, okay, where was I going with this? How was I feeling? Mm -hmm. And try and recapture that moment. And get back in the zone. Yeah. Do your coworkers know that you write or do you keep those sectors of your life separate? They do. They do. Um, a lot of them, too, have been very supportive. I've had a lot of coworkers um, buy my book. And uh, I always tell everybody, you don't have to buy my book. You don't, you know, don't <laughs> do that. 
And my dad's like, you got to stop saying that to people. Let them buy your book. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Get the, get the sales up. <laughs> Make them feel real guilty. They should all be buying your book. Yeah, I'd be like, yeah. why didn't you buy this posted all over, you know, the office? But, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah they are, you know, they're very supportive. There are a lot of people. I probably have a hundred coworkers. You know, I'm not sure if all hundred are in, in the building because we do have some people that work off site. But, you know, a majority of them are there. I say at least 80 for sure. Um, some people I don't talk with that much. They don't even know I'm an author. Um, other people, you know, know, and they've bought my book. I don't really make it a point to talk about it too much. Uh, people will ask me, um, when I'm close to deadline, people can tell cause I'm really crabby. So, <laughs> they'll be like, Oh, are you on deadline again? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's nice. It's good to have that support. Um, even if it's a little bit more low key. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was always afraid, actually, like, because I'm I'm a, an English teacher, oh. um, and I was always afraid to like at work talk about having a podcast. I don't know something about podcasts too. Like, they're inherently embarrassing well, in, in LA. <laughs> in, LA in LA, yeah. especially, it's very yeah. Everyone has a podcast. Everyone has a script, and everyone has a podcast. <laughs> and um, so I, I wouldn't mention it. I would try to keep it a secret. Especially also the other element to that are I have I work with high schoolers, mm-hmm. and so oh yes, you know I don't I mean. I, there's nothing salacious in this podcast. No, but you want to maintain your privacy. Right. Yeah. But on the other end of the spectrum, like, and, then I, and then when I would like meet people through the podcast, I initially resisted telling people I was a teacher because I didn't want them to think that I was like not taking this side of that seriously either. But finally, I've, I've managed to merge the two and I feel much better. <laughs> it's a part like I feel like a, it's important for both of those halves to reconcile and... Mm-hmm. Um, I think people are accepting that more. Like you can have two things going on and it doesn't mean that you aren't approaching both of those things with equal amounts of seriousness and energy. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's become more accepting and, you know, people understand, you know, your day job, you know, is your day job and and you have respect for that. And you also have this other thing and it's just, it's become such a common juggle for people, which I think is great, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, and speak on the topic of support and um, having a community within work. Can you talk a little bit about the community, writing community, and spe- specifically in Cleveland? You know, on this podcast, we talk a lot about on um, the writing scene in LA because we have a lot of LA-based authors come on. So I'm just curious, um, what's what's the scene like there? It's it's actually pretty healthy. A lot of people wouldn't think that of Cleveland. It's it's definitely mm-hmm. smaller than you know, other major cities, but we do have um, Literary Cleveland, which is a group um, that covers a lot of writers in the area. And we also have Sisters in Crime. Um, We have a local chapter for Northeast Ohio. And we also have a Romance Writers of America group um, that I'm not entirely too familiar with, but I know that they they do exist in the area. So it's a pretty good um, mix of both fiction and nonfiction uh, writers, mm-hmm. we kind of all know each other because, you know, it isn't that big. So most of us do know each other. We've met in passing at, at, at um, you know, book events or conferences or something. Um, but everybody is really nice. It, it, just such a welcoming area. The Sisters in Crime has been so influential in my writing. I would have been lost without them. I got around these ladies and they just, they said to me, when you get published, not if you get published, but when. And I think that's so crucial to have that type of support system around you because, you know, anytime you get into something artistic, people are very opinionated about that. 
and, you know, they want to mm-hmm. tell you to shy away from it. It's not going to happen. You know, and then you have this group of women, some, and everyone is at different levels. You know, some of them have been published for years and other that others have only been published for a little while. Some aren't published at all, but everyone is so supportive of one another, wherever they're at in their career. And it's just a great feeling. Sounds like a great, yeah, it's an incredible resource, um, Scissors in Crime. Sometimes I find that in smaller cities that those artistic communities are especially thriving because maybe there's not as many resources available. So people kind of, they cluster together and then there's a higher level of support. Oh, so it's absolutely. nice to hear the, that that's going strong in Cleveland. Yes, yes, it's, it's, it's really great. And that that's my, probably my advice to, to writers and the people that I've met during, um, you know, my book talk, they'll ask me, you know, what do you think has been most beneficial to your career? And honestly, it's belonging to a writer's organization. It's important. It's, it's definitely important to have that support. Um, but it's also important to decompress after a busy day of working and writing. Oh. And I heard you enjoy playing video games. Yeah. And I, I play a lot of video games. Oh, <laughs> so right. I'm really curious to know. Funny. What video games are you playing most these days? So I am a PlayStation girl. And the game that I just finished playing recently, well, I played it five times because I couldn't help myself, was Detroit Become Human. I haven't heard of that. Like, yeah. what's, what's, what's the plot of that? It is a fantastic game. And I am a huge um, fan of Quant- uh, Quantic Dream. They make the best games. They made a game a couple years ago, and I, the name just escaped me. But it was the best game that I've ever played. And they, you know, came out with Detroit Become Human. And it's a futuristic game. You have to make all of the decisions. Whatever decisions you make affect the outcome of the game. There are so many different outcomes depending on what you do. And, you know, the world, um, you know, has uh, artificial intelligent life. And the game is about what would happen if artificial intelligence became aware of itself and wanted to become human. It follows this, this cast of characters that all are, tre- you know, treated differently. One, you know, helps a guy who's sick. Another one is a maid uh, for a guy who's like a drug dealer. And it's it just watching these characters and you pick everything, you know, you pick how the characters are going to respond and it plays out for you. You know, whether you're going to, um, stay robotic or you're going to try and become more human and, and, and fight against the humans. And it really has a, a very strong message that I probably would not do justice in explaining, but it just, it shows you, you know, you can either approach things with a positive mentality or a negative mentality. And those choices, you know, they have things that are going to come along with it. So it's a really great game. Yeah, it sounds like it. I don't think a lot of people realize how complex storytelling has gotten in video games. Oh, it's wonderful. And that one sounds like it's really layered. And a lot of games now explore really complex uh, social and ethical issues. Yeah. And do that through gameplay where you're making choices in an open world. And that influences the, 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 where the story goes. I wish I could say I was playing as media game as that. I'm, <laughs> I've become addicted to Fortnite. <laughs> that is so, so I'm, right now. <laughs> I know. Well, it's, it's just, honestly, it's me and seven-year-olds. Cause like, uh, whenever I turn on the microphone, it's, it's somewhat, it's a, it's a kid yelling, is the mic on? And my partner. <laughs> and sometimes I'll play with Jillian's partner. Um, 
yeah, so nothing is as uh, serious as that. It's like actually one of the most mindless games I've ever played in my life. I <laughs> but tried. I'm addicted to it. I really tried Fortnite, and I just ended up running around in a circle. I tried to build something, and then someone <laughs> killed me. And I was like, I can't do this. <laughs> no, I, I was the same way. I, I was terrible at it. And I put it down for like a month. I, I, I played it like one day, and I was like, I don't understand why anyone likes this. And then they introduced like animals that you can wear on your back. Oh, wow. And I'm like, oh, that looks really cute. <laughs> <laughs> so I tried it again. And because I wanted to get earn that cosmetic item, I kept playing a lot. <laughs> and then I slowly got good enough that I wasn't dying immediately. And I'm still terrible, but I can at least hang for a little while in the game. Honestly, you, you dodged a bullet. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's very it's, addicting. Yeah, it's addicting. So, yeah. yeah, I feel like I wouldn't get any writing done if I got into that. No. Um, yeah, I know, exactly. I, I need to, I need to f- figure out how to quit playing it, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is it is so nice to talk to a fellow gamer yeah. on this podcast. <laughs> um, sw- switching gears a little bit, you talked about this in a previous question. Um, that joining Sisters in Crime was a big help to your writing career. Um, but what advice do you have for people who are just getting into the cozy mystery genre, who are someone who's just starting out? What advice do you have? Aside from the, you know, the advice to join a, a writer's group, I would say my biggest advice for cozy writers is to read. Just mm. read everything you can. Read, you know, pick a publisher that you want and read them that I think that was probably the best advice that I got before anything happened is, you know, find the books that you like and then find out who the publisher is and then read what they're publishing, read your favorite authors, you know, and kind of get a feel for what they're looking for. Because I feel like each publisher is a little bit different in what they're looking for and what the focus is on. And Mm -hmm. I I think that that's important to know your market. So I would probably tell another, you know, person who is like, hey, I'm just getting into cozies. What do you think I should do? Read. Just read. And, you know, and see what do they like. I think it's very important advice because I know people submit to literary journals. They don't even bother to read the journal sometimes. And that's really frustrating to editors. So if you're pitching something or want to write for a certain publisher, you need to know what they're publishing first. So yeah. I think some people don't keep that in mind. So that's great advice. Um, and then also going on to what you're writing now, you mentioned that you recently hit your deadline. I know you have a book coming out. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? So um, the book that is going to be coming out next is Wanton Terror. And that comes out. Love at- it at the end of August. I know I love the, the it. The titles of your books are the best. I love them so they much. They really are. <laughs> they are. And I cannot take credit for them because <laughs> they, uh, the publishing company does come up with them. Um, you know, they'll give me a grouping of titles and I'll, you know, and I'll pick from there. But Wonton Terror, I, I absolutely love. I love the book. Um, I take Lana and friends to uh, the Cleveland Night Market And we have, it just started a couple years ago. There wasn't anything going on last year, but they're bringing it back this year. And it's just a really fun place to go. And I I loved it because the only time I've ever been in night market is when I visited Taiwan and it was a blast. And then I found out Cleveland was going to have one. And I thought I need to go to this and it's great. And I thought, let me take Lana some different places. So I have them set up with a booth at 
the Cleveland night market. And of course everything goes wrong. And that, you know, and that's where that story will go. The um, book that I just finished writing now is the fifth in the series. It's called egg drop dead. (laughs) (laughs) Another winner. It is. It's a very cute story that just got turned in. And then I don't want to give away too much about that because it's in the editing process right now. So I don't know what will change, Mm -hmm. but um, there will be a sixth book. And then I'm going to try my bestest for nine books. I'm going to try and, and get another book deal. So hopefully they will have a very long life. I, I hope so. This is one of my new favorite series. So oh, well, thank you for doing all of those. Where can people find you online to stay up to date on your newest releases? So I am on Facebook and Instagram the most. And then I also have a Twitter. I want to say, I, I'm not ill-prepared for this, but I think it's Vivian underscore Chen underscore author. But if you look up Vivian Chen, um, you should be able to find me pretty easily. And then I also have a website, VivianChen.com, and that links to all of my social media. Great. Awesome. So, so go check out Vivian online, her latest book, Murder Lomain, or, or any of the series. This is the, the third in the series, so pick up the other two as well. And thank you so much, Vivian. We've really enjoyed chatting with you today. Oh, yeah, thank it's you wonderful. for having me. It's so fun talking to you guys. Thank you, Vivian. Really appreciate it. All right, so we're back, just the two of us. Mm-hmm. to review our candle for the day. So before we leave you, we're going to review a new candle, but not a new company. So this candle is also by Olympic Candle. When we went to Seattle, yeah. we picked up two Olympic candles. We reviewed the coffee one, Campground Which Coffee, great. a couple of weeks ago. And this one is Fireside. Seems it fits this theme of summer, yeah, you know, camping, all that. Yeah. that. That's true. It's very appropriate. Yeah. You're all about to go camping. We're over here. We're not camping. <laughs> but it, it smells like we are. Yeah, it's a great scent. This is right off the heels of our diptyque candle when we were living in luxury with a oh, wood fire wood, candle. Wood fire smell, yeah. Yeah, so very similar uh, in terms of the theme. We're on fire. But totally different candles. And so this candle, one thing I love about it, it's in a very pretty blue jar. I think that's my favorite part of it. Yeah. I don't know what you describe that hue, mm-hmm. but it's the most beautiful blue color. Yeah, it's like a, a deep navy blue, like a midnight blue. I think a midnight blue. Yeah. I'm a little biased in terms of this candle because, first of all, I really like woody scents. We both love those scents. Yeah. It's our catnip. <laughs> <laughs> if it smells like burning wood, I'm in. And it does. I've been burning this candle for a while. (laughs) This is not like a fresh candle that I've never burned before. And so it's been on a lot in my apartment. And and I've really loved it. I love the way that it fills. It does a good job of filling the room it's in without leaking too much into all the other Mm -hmm. adjoining spaces. It's it's contained, but it fills whatever room you put it in. But it is almost over. It's it's gotten quite low. Still going strong. In the... The jar, but it's it's been several hours of burning. I've gotten a lot of life out of this candle, mm-hmm. and I love the smell. I don't think right now the smell is as strong as it has been, but I, that could be because it's almost over, or it could be because I have. If, if you can't tell with my voice, this episode, even the last episode we recorded, it's, it sounds a little bit more gravelly. Um, it's because I have I'm just getting over a cold, so please excuse my voice. And I don't know if that's impacting how much I can smell right now. Mm -hmm. But I remember, I have a memory of this being a very strong 
not very strong and that it's overpowering, but like it has a presence as a candle. So for me, I'm going to give a, a wick up to this candle. I'm going to give a wick up too. I like it because it, though it has that smoky scent, it also has a sweet aroma to it. Yeah. I don't know if how that how that coincides, but it's like a sweet smoky smell. I think what I really like about wood fire candles or you know fireplace scented candles is not only are they kind of neutral in the setting of a home where like if you have guests over I feel like no one's going to be offended by that smell no but also once it's burned out and the and the smells start to dissipate from the space I feel like it has this cleansing effect like I feel like it resets the the scent in uh the apartment that's a good point because other candles sometimes the the scent cloaks things and it's yeah. you have to wait for a while to have that scent go away. Right. But you're right. I can see this kind of cleansing the whole space. So nice. yeah, so we enjoy it. Another knockout performance by <laughs> Olympic Candle. Undefeated. Yeah. I know, you should be advertising for them at this point. I know. Olympic Hint-tent. Candle. <laughs> go to Seattle to buy them. I'm sure they're I'm sure they're sold around here too. Yeah. I, know, I, I, I don't know why it's, I don't know why I'm so confident. <laughs> <laughs> you got a handle on the candle market. I got a handle on the candles. <laughs> anyway. Uh, Jillian's tired of me. She, she's ready to end this episode. But we really did have a wonderful time talking to Vivian. Um, mm-hmm. She's awesome. Her books are awesome. Highly, highly recommend. Please check them out. They, yeah. You're doing yourself a favor. It's just so refreshing. It's refreshing to, to, to read a series set in a city that they normally aren't, like Cleveland, mm-hmm. and to have a protagonist that you don't normally see. Mm-hmm. Um, it's great. It really is a breath of fresh air, and um, I'm I I'm not kidding when I say I look forward to reading yeah, the next here. Little Shop mystery. Yeah, and I appreciate um, those listeners who recommended Vivian to mm-hmm. us. We do take your uh, recommendations seriously, and we love listener input. Cause it's it's all of our podcast. We thrive on it. Lately, yeah. you've been producing the show, and you've been telling yeah, pretty, us what to do. Much. So I like it. Yeah. So I keep doing that. Um, and you can. Boss us around some more on social media so you can leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. You can leave a comment and a like at our Instagram at All Things Cozy Podcast. You can like us on Facebook and you can join our Facebook group as well. Yeah. So stay cozy. Stay cozy, everyone. Bye. Bye.